the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harbour with us. The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles, and, and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder, there seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today, uh, the movement afoot to try and, and get it addressed at, at multiple layers, and the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King. They forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if, if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church. Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back, and I just want to um, share how all of this is all connected. Um, and, and it's funny because I kind of have to go back to, to the Roman times, to, to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it. Um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society. When he wrote The Republic in 360 B.C., and in The Republic, 360 B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races, and those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron people. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the, the Republic in a different way. So then... Flash forward to about 1453 A.D., and you get the Pope at that point um, putting forward the Doctrine of Discovery. So race, we know, um, uh, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at at its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that if, so an explorer comes to him and says, yo, 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 Pope, you know, I'm going to go exploring, and I need your blessing. And the Pope says, I got it, you got my blessing, but even, I'll one-up you, if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone, go ahead and claim it for the kingdom. Go ahead and claim it for the throne, because that means they're not civilized, and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land. So where we get that, so what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious 
um, uh, uh, a nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you have Linnaeus, the botanist, who puts together a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top and then uh, Asians and then um, red, he called them red, um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanus on the bottom. And that is the, that's when we start to see different races um, in different ways. And then we start to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the three-fifths compromise that said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Then in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America. And that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed, struggling to have the full image of God, the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement. And of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble. Right. codifies that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's interesting that it doesn't say we we have determined, we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we created ourselves, but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity, and certainly from a biblical perspective, I think we would say that that comes from God. That's and yet, exactly even right. from then, we have managed to, you know, make the make the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since. Yes, that's exactly right. And so what you get is you get the Civil War where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have in the image of God in them realized and cultivated and protected. And then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back, and then you get the Civil Rights Movement that, that again, fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Lives Matter Movement or the current movement for the black, for a, of black struggle is that the Civil Rights Movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit grandma, it hit baby, it hit, it hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution, then, to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is, today, the people who were experiencing the brunt, the, the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's uh, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not churched. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And, of course, they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job, it's the role of the church to then come alongside, to add the moral heft of our moral authority and to stand with them and to say yes. We are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including uh, Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on. You know, the sad thing is that you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America. 
and, and all the crime and everything that attends to that and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships. And yet, as you point out, the impact, it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy in that if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank, a bank account or a contact list strong enough that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, okay, 90 days probation and uh, write a big check to some foundation and, and uh, we'll We'll consider it one and done. And yet, if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powdered form but uses the crack cocaine form, oh, all of a sudden now you got to do ninety years in jail. That's exactly right. And I mean, and more than that, we've actually now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in nineteen in the early nineteen seventies, I believe it was nineteen seventy two, he said we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually that that was. A dog whistle. That was buzzword. That was a way post civil rights act to control and confine black black communities. Because if they really were going to have a war on drugs, then they would have actually gone down into the South and they would have they would have focused on um, on Southern women because Southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum the antebellum South up to up to present because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced watching their husbands and, and their brothers go and, um, and well, let's just say it, and, and rape their quote-unquote property, black women and men, quite honestly, um, through on, on slave plantations. And so those women anesthetized themselves by, by drugging themselves. But, of course, that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing on black communities, and whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the bulk of who you get. Well, even we see the the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's that's managed to have the same negative impact. That while on the surface, oh, it sounds great, we got a we got a war on poverty and we got a war on drugs, and they don't realize in every war there are casualties, and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people, the very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well. A fascinating. And I sure appreciate the time, Lisa, from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights. And again, more found inside the pages of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly released by Multnomah Press. And again, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on man's fallen condition. One, by the way, of our own doing. Uh, that, of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, if the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring, in reconciling our relationship with God, that reconciliation between creator and creation. Should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us. She's Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners. The author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program. 
Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be here. This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled and walk and restore relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and, and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I, I, was, I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in 1983, August 21st of 1983. Actually, my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon. Quite a, it sure <laughs> is, isn't much. it? I almost forgot that. Um, but, you know, I, I came to faith, and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is, this is really about my relationship with God, and that's it. And I took a journey... Just about 13 years ago, um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation, and on that pilgrimage, we went across 10 states in the in the South, the Northern South and the Deep South, asking the question the whole way as we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience and, and the um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I realized that. If I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the Trail of Tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, (laughs) but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. All you need to do is pray this prayer because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down? I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the scripture to find what is, how does Jesus actually communicate the gospel? Because I think at at the end of the day, that, that sense of realization, that quickening of man's separation from God and sin and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for, for forgiveness and reconciliation is something that, we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And yet, oftentimes, I think we as the church sort of leave it there. It's sort of the one and done. And once you've, you, you've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've, you've made that surrender, you've asked for forgiveness, you've given your life over to God, God is therefore, through the power of the work of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, forgiven us, and, and that reconciliation process begins. And, and that's wonderful and beautiful and, and all part of God's design, to be sure. But God wants so much more for us, doesn't he? And that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden. But, but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as a end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us. Well, that, that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research. Was What I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher because um, it, it, when, you, when you open up that word, you begin to open up the text. That word tov is not necessarily referring to the things themselves. It, it's not necessarily saying, God is saying, ooh, that's a good son I just made, or ooh, that's a really great platypus, or that's a great human being. No, instead what it's saying 
goodness, according to the Hebrews, existed between things. But our understanding of perfection, which is a, really a Greek concept, exists in the thing. So when we think of what the perfection as God would, um, would, would have it, perfection as we've been taught through the Greeks actually is about us becoming perfect or God's creation being perfect and they're, you know, and then defiled. But actually, the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God, and also in the relationship between men and women, and humanity and the rest of creation, and all of God's creation, and the systems that govern us, that the way things worked, there was only blessing, not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed, it's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, but the reality is, is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationship, relationships that then become well as well. So God um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very good for all, not just some. So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to... And while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this uh, um, responsibility to go around, uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the, 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 the large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on the power of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation only on the vertical plane and somehow act as if uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with, our, with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane? Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context and outside of the context of the whole rest of the scripture. Because Jesus comes to us, was born into a long story, a story written by many authors that spans millennia and goes beyond him as well as, you know, through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of Paul. And so when we take Jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire, just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people crucified at one in one day, crucified, 500 crucified after that every single day by another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when, when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the, the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low, and when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I am, I've been anointed to preach good news, not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed. There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a, a, a context of oppressed people. 
So I think that that's one of the things that we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context. Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation here at this edition of Lifeline, our visit with Lisa Sharon Harper. Her new book, by the way, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly published by Waterbrook and Multnomah Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Is part of the issue here, Sharon, the fact that perhaps in our quest to understand reconciliation between creation, creator, and seeing the, the need or, or comprehending the transformative power of salvation, that it hasn't gone far enough. And by that I mean um, salvation is the beginning point. Then there is this matter of sanctification. So we recognize sin, the impact of sin. We then, through the power of Christ's blood, become saved. That salvation then takes us to that long-term process in preparation of moving from um, the kingdom here on earth to the, the, the kingdom up in heaven with the big capital K. And that, of course, is called this matter of sanctification. I would imagine that if, if mankind were really truly embracing sanctification and not just the concept of fire insurance, that the changing of our heart in relationship to God would also change our heart in relationship to each other. And therefore, the turmoil that we're seeing, even right now as we speak, would, would perhaps look very differently wouldn't it? I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you a story. I was, I was writing Genesis, the uh, chapter two of the book, on a glimpse of Shalom, and I was writing and, and researching, actually, Genesis one, and some, I had this huge aha moment that led me really to a time of worship as I was writing, and actually weeping, I was weeping and worshiping, because I realized that uh, many scholars now believe that they understand that Genesis as a book was actually written by several different sets of authors that um, one of those sets of authors was a, was a company of priests. These priests were leaving. They were exiting the Babylonian exile. As such, that, you know, so I've heard that. I've heard that term before. About, you know, they were exiled. Okay, they didn't get to live where they wanted to live. But it's much more than that. They went through war. Sons died. Mothers died. Husbands brothers died. Then they were taken away from their land, made to live in Babylon, in a place that was not their own. In that land, they were taught the worldview of the Babylonians. The Babylonians told them that they were created to be slaves. That was the Babylonian worldview. All humanity was created to be enslaved by the gods, slaves to the gods. They were also told that they were not made in the image of God, only the royalty was made in the image of God. So when I was studying Genesis 1, and I get to the, uh, to the beginning of day 6, 
And they say that these priests write, and God said, let all humankind be made in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth. I, I, it hit me. I was like, this is revolutionary for them because they had just spent 70 years in oppression. And then it hit me, wait a minute. I've never heard that the writers of Genesis 1, not 2, but Genesis 1, they were coming out of an oppressed context. They were, they were, they were writing in the context of thinking through and trying to figure out how do they see their own creation story in light of what they've been told about who they are by their oppressors. And I think that that's actually really, truly one of the biggest issues, Craig, is that when we study the scripture, when we look at and try to put together theologies that work for us, we are not doing it from the same social location, from the same uh, uh, experience as those who wrote the scripture in the first place. So what we tend to do is we tend to divorce it from its context, and then, you know, we jump to application and jump to interpretation before we even understand what the original writers might have been thinking in the first place. Sure, and that's, that's the simplest definition of proof texting. Exactly. Uh, come up with a conclusion and then go find a piece of scripture that's going to support your conclusion. <laughs> exactly. And, and check this out, Craig. I mean, imagine the power of, of these people having been enslaved for 70 years, turning around and saying, God said, let all humanity have dominion. And that word dominion, it's been really misunderstood. It actually means stewardship. It means, in fact, in Genesis 2, you have picture of dominion that is the till and keep when the humans are placed in the garden and said till and keep this. That, those words till and keep mean serve and protect. So dominion, to exercise dominion is to serve and protect. And all humanity has been given that, 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 that call and that capacity by God. But the problem for us is that we live in a world where we have laws and systems and structures that have told us a lie. So the issue here then is not just a matter of a distorted view of how we see ourselves, right. uh, or, or others rather, but also how we see ourselves. Right, that's exactly right. We, 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 have, we have not understood that God cares about how we exercise power here on earth and how we interact with each other in relationship to power. Because I think that one of the, the key, the, the, the big question that they were trying to ask in Genesis 1 was after having been oppressed for 70 years, how now shall we rule as we enter into the new rule in the temple? And so the question of the image of God is key then, because there's some implications there. All humanity is made in the image of God, so everybody is a representative figure of God. Everybody is called with the capacity to exercise dominion. And if we govern in a way that squashes the capacity of any individual or people group to exercise dominion, then we are also squashing the image of God on earth. Well, not only that, but we're also um, denigrating the way they see God because their perception is that God yes. thinks less of them. That yes. all of a sudden exactly. we've set up second and third class citizens, and now all of a sudden there's an elite that's uh, uh, going to get the bigger mansions in heaven, and uh, then there's a second and third class citizens that uh, are not so. And all of a sudden, then I think that that diminished viewpoint of of ourself is a natural flow out of a a taken out of context understanding of how God sees us. Yes, and you know, like, think of it this way also. When you look at the beginning of Luke, Luke 1, Luke actually sets it up. Luke says, you know, in the days of Herod, in the days of King Herod, well, 
That's significant. He's setting up the context. The context is the context of empire. It's the context of an oppressed people. It's the context of, of a very corrupt king um, uh, or proxy king for Caesar. And it's, a, it's the uh, context of, of the Roman Empire, which had just um, done 2,000 uh, uh, crucifixions and 500 every day after that, just a few years before this, the, right, the, the period when this text place takes place. So that's the context that Luke is setting up in the beginning. It's actually, and then Jesus is born. And in and, and Mark, we see Jesus say, repent and believe the, ki- the, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom, believe the gospel, believe the good news. I believe that when Jesus came, what he was doing was he was confronting the kingdoms of men that crushed the image of God. And Jesus' work was to create um, flourishing in the image of God, in the people, starting with the Jews and working his way out. And that flourishing requires that we have relationship with God. But it also, it, it requires relationship with each other that, that blesses and does not curse the image of God in each other. And we certainly know that it's possible. I mean, if you look at the ragtag group of the 12 that he had around him, I mean, there's plenty of of cause uh, for for none of the individuals to really get along, particularly when you consider the fact that you've got multiple layers of multiple classes of individuals. You've got tax collectors, and you have physicians, and you have thinkers, and you have fishermen. So you've got everything from the blue-collar worker to the white-collar worker to those that are high up in government to those that uh, eschew anything involving government, thinking it's just a dirty place to be, to be. And yet you manage to find all of these men coming together in absolute harmony around the central figure of Jesus Christ himself. So we know that the sense of reconciliation on the horizontal plane is modeled successfully so. Uh, sure, I'm sure they had their moments. I mean, we, we certainly even see evidence of that in Scripture. But overall, the the capacity to see reconciliation uh, and, and, and balanced relationship take place along the horizontal is modeled in the apostles. And so why not then superimpose um, that paradigm on where we're at to get today. We'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. We're visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper. The book is called A Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. And we're going to dig down a bit deeper into the application of the power of the gospel and its influence on things such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, uh, all of significant um, changes that took place in American society 40 years ago now, and what seems to be a troubling absent, absence of that impact today, and whether or not this is in part... Uh, uh, can, can better explain the challenges that we're facing and what the road out may be. We'll get to that part of the conversation as Lifeline continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Crown Forum, the publisher, the author, Ann Coulter, the title, Demonic, How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America. And Ann, as always, a thrill to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Great to be here. Boy, lots to talk about in, in in what is now no doubt destined to become number eight of your New York Times bestsellers. This time around, it, it's interesting because as much and as this seems to be a new topic, you're really dealing with an old mentality that has roots that go back over centuries, really. Um, yes, I compare the French. I trace it back to the French Revolution and the American Revolution, and yeah, I, I think the the. Re- Division between modern liberalism and modern conservatism, as we think of them, um, was was the the very different um, 
were the different revolutions from the American and the French, and they're often thrown together just because they happen to have occur around the same time. And also, I think liberals are trying to hide the French Revolution from us because it is they're the heirs to the French Revolution. It's the revolt of a mob, an atheistic, violent, um, pointless revolution that led directly into the arms of a dictator, Napoleon. Um, just just wanton violence, desecration of Notre Dame Cathedral, they turned it into the Temple of Reason, um, as liberals often do, saying they are the ones who believe in reason, um, as opposed to God, but uh, they, ended up, they ended up with neither reason nor God. And amazing how that is, you know, I've been watching a, a series that outlines the rise of Nazi Germany. So often folks focus on uh, September 1st, 39, the start of World War II, but a study of all of the events that folded into the rise of Hitler coming to power and the way he was able to, to literally mesmerize an entire nation is is an eye-opener and I think a troubling one because we see a lot of very dangerous parallels between what Hitler was able to do in Nazi Germany in the late 20s, early 1930s, and quite frankly, a lot of stuff that I'm seeing going on in the liberal establishment in America today. Well, again, I think it's all from the French Revolution. It was the French Revolution that established the pattern that would be um, mimicked to some extent in Nazi Germany, uh, very, very closely in Russia, in China, in Vietnam, uh, in Venezuela. It was, it was a revolution based on the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, a, a paranoid hypochondriac who believed that a group of elites would be able to um, um, grasp, understand what the general will was of society, what we all believed, and they would impose it on the people for the good of mankind. Uh, and you do have that mentality and, and always have in, in the American left that, that they know how to run things better. They're Rhodes Scholars. They went to Harvard. And we know you don't want your health care changed, American people. But don't worry. I figured it out. My roommate and I worked it out on paper, and it's going to work fantastically well. Um, there are always promises of utopia, uh, such as uh, a free health care system that will actually save money. Um, and... And and the way the arguments are made and the way the a crowd reacts, um, crowds. I, I I rely a lot on the the social philosopher Gustave Le Bon, who was I think not coincidentally French. He lived about a hundred years after the French Revolution. He must have had that revolution in mind um, when he discovered the concept of of crowd psychology. He's considered the father of groupthink, um, for noticing that a man in a crowd behaves and thinks differently when he's in a crowd than when he's isolated and by himself. A man in a crowd will lose some of his intelligence. He can't understand reason. Um, a crowd can't understand reason. Um, pictures are better than words. Don't try to use logic with a crowd. Um, demonize the enemy and, and turn your leaders into messiahs. Well, you see all of that with, with the left in America, um, from FDR, JFK, uh, Bill Clinton, Obama. They're, they're worshipped uh, in ways that no Republican, even much better presidents, are worshipped. I mean, the closest I could think of from our side, and this is more our fond memories in, in retrospect, was of Ronald Reagan. Well, when he was president, he wasn't even the most popular conservative. It was Jerry Falwell, followed by William F. Buckley, and coming in third, it was Ronald Reagan. Throughout his um, two terms, he was constantly attacked uh, by conservatives from the right, uh, holding his feet to the fire. Uh, meanwhile, both Clinton and Obama, um, as I cite in my book, uh, you know, liberal women go around talking about how they have sex dreams about them. 
it goes back to the father of the Democratic Party, Andrew Jackson. I, I have a quote from um, John Meekham's book on Andrew Jackson from a, a contemporaneous newspaper account, how the crowds thronged around him like children to a father. Mm. Um, these Democrats always treat their leaders that way, while at the same time demonizing their enemies, um, which manifestly <laughs> happens uh, with the way they talk about Republicans. Um, and, and, I mean, the things that were said about George Bush when he was president, and not just Bush, but Cheney and Rumsfeld and Karl Rove, um, it's just this horrible, monstrous cabal. Um, the way liberals uh, talk in images with, you know, Paul Ryan is putting together this plan to reform Social Security, which is bankrupting the country. It is a fact. Um, his arguments are based on reason, whether you like his plan or not. And Democrats respond by showing a, a commercial of a Paul Ryan lookalike pushing an old lady off her wheelchair um, in a wheelchair off a cliff. Um, this is how Democrats talk. They use repetition, affirmation. It's, it's, it's straight out of the groupthink playbook, and it works because the Democratic voters um, are highly susceptible to groupthink. Well, you know, one of the examples of that that comes to mind, and I recall leading up to the election uh, two, two and a half years ago, there was so much talk about uh, bringing the American involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq to a close. And as you recall, just prior to the economic collapse, the big uh, campaign plank that uh, Obama was running on when that was the Republicans had no plan for extraction. And, and yet, amazingly, here we are two and a half years later, uh, and all of a sudden, all of the Democrat war protesters were so angry at the, Demo the Republicans for getting us into this mess, they've all just disappeared. Yes, that's right. That's right. No, and the, the slogans are a very big part of, of the Democratic Party's technique and a big part of groupthink. Um, the slogans don't have to make sense. It's, it's, it's helpful if they rhyme, but they must be short and sort of seem superficially appealing. I have about a half a page of liberal slogans in my book. Um, you know, you can't hug a child with nuclear arms. Um, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? Uh, think green. Um, yes, we can. Uh, Bush lied, kids died. These are just a few off the top of my head. Um, I'm reading them off my neighbor's car here. Uh, and, and meanwhile, you can't think of the slogans Republicans have. It's, it's become kind of a joke with Republicans that we're responding to hectoring by standing there with um, you know, a flow ch chart and a pointer trying to explain what's happening here. One of my friends recently told me she was, I guess, I don't know where she was, I, said, I assume it was in Florida, um, during the 2000 election recount, as it's called in Florida, the attempt of, of Gore to steal the election. And she went to, you know, a conservative rally um, against <laughs> allowing selective recounts in Florida. And she said the Republican who was leading them, you know, stands up with a bullhorn, sort of gets the concept of what you do at a rally, but couldn't come up with a chant. So it was always, you, you couldn't really understand what he was saying, but we oppose the recounting the ballots in selective, selective counties because it violates the Constitution. And the crowd is standing there wondering what they're supposed to chant back. <laughs> we can't get the hang of it. <laughs> well, they have it down to a science, to be sure. And, you know, I, I, I got a big uh, laugh one point in the book, Demonic, how the liberal mob is endangering America. Uh, you opine a very uh, you, you point out, rather, a very uh, harsh reality, and that is, you know, when is the last time you heard a group of conservatives threatening to leave the country if a Democrat was elected? Oh, that's right. And the citizens' arrest, the pie-throwing, the um, just, just smashing Starbucks windows. There is no violence on the right. Even, even as liberals, um, the mainstream media were denouncing the Tea Parties as a mob for the last two years, the only violence at, at either the conservative town halls or, or the Tea Parties was 
committed by liberals against the conservatives. Um, these liberals are constantly staging citizens' arrests, making spectacles of themselves, standing up during conservative speeches, even Sarah Palin's speech to the nation, introducing herself to the nation at the Republican National Committee. You have two liberal lunatics, Obama bundlers, by the way. Um, these weren't just random, you know, nuts who happened to stroll into the Republican National Convention. No, one of them had worked for, on Jerry Brown's gubernatorial campaign. Um, I, in fact, I think she headed it. But in any event, big Obama bundler. And these women rip off their clothes and they're wearing silly costumes underneath with placards denouncing Sarah Palin and start walking to- toward the stage, screaming at Sarah Palin. Um, you may not have heard about that until you read my book because only two newspapers in the country reported it. So, you know, we're under these constant, not only groupthink in terms of the way liberals argue on TV and how they understand arguments, but groupthink does sometimes break out into a literal mob engaging in violence. Um, and just like the French Revolution, you're never really sure what the point is, what they want, why were these women so angry at Sarah Palin? Why were those, those liberals smashing Starbucks windows in Seattle when some bankers came to town? What is their point? It doesn't really matter. It's always the threat of violence and the citizens rest. And what happened to Rupert Mur- Murdoch just this week um, when he's testifying in Britain um, over something rally- rather silly? But of course, someone tries to put um, uh, a pie of shaving cream in his face. Yeah, and again, Someone just a liberal. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, again, it goes back to this idea, as you suggest, you know, this whole this whole mob mentality, the group think, which in reality is not really thinking at all, because if they were thinking, they would realize how outlandishly ridiculous some of the positions that they take or really are. Yes, that's right. Um, no, it's it's. It's an emotional reaction because you can't reason with a mob, um, which is why the conclusion of my book is, is well, I, the point is for, for Americans to wake up and recognize um, and notice the groupthink and the mob psychology. Um, you know, you can turn on MSNBC any hour of the day. It's like the video illustration of Gustave Le Bon's book um, of, of, of crowd psychology, how they talk and their slogans. Um, but also to notice that for 100 years in this country, all the political violence has come from the left. In 200 years of the nation's existence, every political assassination attempt that was for a political reason, and it wasn't just some lunatic who thought he was, um, you know, King Edward of England and Andrew Jackson owed him money, um, a political assassination attempt on a president, every single one was committed by a liberal. Um, at every single Tea Party in town hall, every act of violence was a liberal. Every citizen's arrest is committed by a liberal. Every storming of a congressional hearing, of a conservative speaking, of a, of a, Republic, of a, of a party's political convention is committed by a liberal. Well, I, re- I recall and a number are always dangerous things. They have got to be smashed. I, I recall a number of years ago, weren't you on the receiving end? You were speaking at a, a university somewhere, and you were on, I think, the receiving end of an attempted uh, pie-throwing thing. When is the last time you heard about anybody going up to a Keith Oberman? Or, or Chris Matthews and attempting to pie them in the face. Exactly. It will never happen. It will never, ever happen. Yet and still, Keith Oberman, during the 2008 um, party conventions, Republican Party convention in particular, Keith Oberman refused to leave New York and go out to Minnesota to attend to cover the Republican National Convention unless they doubled his security. and on that note I'm going to have to run hey I appreciate the time as always Ann we look forward to visiting with you again next time great to talk to you thanks take care there's Ann Coulter the new book Demonic How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America the book again is published by Crown Forum available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com and as Ann mentioned in fact the New York Times number one bestseller list 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.